I've abandoned my children. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. My Say it louder. Say it louder. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Beg for the blood. Hello, Southwestern oil barons, and welcome to Jump Cuts, a podcast about movies. My name is Charlie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Will. Hello. And Park. Hello. This week, we watched There Will Be Blood, a movie that we were going to spin into a poorly constructed Iraq war allegory until we realized it was too good to make fun of. So we're uh, doing something a little different with the format this week. In the past two episodes, we've done these kind of exhaustive recaps, but this movie is A, really good, so hopefully you've already seen it, and B, two hours and 40 minutes long, so if we do an exhaustive recap, nobody is going to listen to this podcast because it will be way, way too long. So, Park, as the resident film scholar here, who is the only one with any kind of qualification to be doing this, is going to give us a quick little synopsis, and then we'll get into our discussion from there. So, Park, you want to take it away? Yeah, thank you very much, Charlie. So, There Will Be Blood. It's about a silver miner turned ruthless oil prospector, Daniel Plainview. He starts his journey to wealth in the open frontier of America in the late 1800s. Working in the well, a tragic accident forces him to take in an orphan child, H.W. Years later, after starting several successful wells, Daniel and H.W. move to oil-rich Little Boston, California, after being tipped off by Paul Sunday about the oil and cheap land. Using H.W. to project a trustworthy family man image, Plainview is able to coerce the local landowners of Little Boston to sell him their valuable oil-filled land for, as Daniel says, quail prices. However, local preacher and Paul's twin brother, Eli Sunday, is suspicious of Daniel's motives and intentions, leading to a battle of two self-centered conmen, a ruthless oil tycoon man portraying himself as a family man and a self-centered narcissist portraying himself as a man of God. The feud finally reaches its boiling point later in life after H.W. leaves to start his own company and the image of Daniel's family business comes crashing down around him. When Eli comes to Daniel with a business proposition, the two men must confront their sins and failings, ultimately leading Daniel to murder Eli, before finally exclaiming, I'm finished. So, uh, obviously, There Will Be Blood is a very highly regarded, highly awarded movie. We don't need to tell you it's good, but my God, this movie is good. So, uh, what did everybody think of There Will Be Blood? Uh, this was <laughs> really refreshing after uh, Miami Vice. Uh, Sweet I, Jesus, yes. I, I didn't think we'd be doing something this, like, unironically, unimpeachably good uh, <laughs> on this podcast, but uh, uh, I, I was definitely, like, ready for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I didn't have to uh, sit through Miami Vice again, not going to lie. I do miss... I did miss doing the podcast with you guys, but I, I don't know if I could have sat through this movie. While There Will Be Blood is one of my all-time favorite films. I actually hosted it for Cinema Club back at Tennessee when I was still there as a student. Um, and it's definitely in my top 10 films. Yeah, this was my first time watching it, finally, because I'm a huge dork and I don't watch enough good movies. But God damn, this movie was really good. 
Uh, and again, I mean, I said it several times last week. We gotta watch a good movie this weekend. Uh, this was this was it, man. And for as much as I enjoyed like Roadhouse too, and you know, trying to read too far into what the writers of Roadhouse are trying to tell us, it was very refreshing to watch a movie where it actually feels like there's you know symbolism and metaphor, and they actually have something to say. Yeah, they're like intentionally trying to get you <laughs> to read into it, and mm-hmm. there's like a lot of different ways to read into it and it's sort of set up in a way where you can kind of pull a lot of different things out of it which i think is always a sign of like a really well done movie that Mm -hmm. like the characters are actually like complicated and i'm still not this is only like my second viewing and i'm still not entirely like sure of the motives of uh all the characters right it's left pretty ambiguous which i usually enjoy and I think yeah. what you said about there being a lot of ways to read it, I think that's very intentionally a message of the movie to write about people based on their perspective, seeing uh, seeing the world around them in different ways, finding different things to look at and finding different things in people. And I mean, you see this very early on, right, with uh, what Park was talking about when Daniel and HW go to buy up the land in Little Boston and as Park said, the quail prices that he's giving people when he's buying up their land. Uh, you know, he's he's seeing it as basically a gold mine, right? Because this is the early oil age and uh, oil is liquid gold at this stage. And of course, as we know, will only continue to become more valuable. Uh, and the people that he's kind of taking advantage of, just they all they see it as, oh, cool, we're getting some money and this guy says he's going to build a school. They don't understand the sheer value that's about to be pulled out of their land, right? Yeah, there's actually like a good scene that it's a it's a quick one that kind of shows that the people of Little Boston or New Boston, I'm blanking on what it was called again, uh, even though I just said it, um, don't quite understand the value of oil when H.W. and Mary are running along uh, kind of early on in the film and Daniel's men are surveying the hillside. Mary asks HW, you know, are you all going to get a lot of money from this well? Or how much money are you going to get from this? And HW kind of shrugs and says a lot. And Mary says, so a thousand dollars. Because yes, a thousand dollars is a lot of money. But to, you know, to her family and the Sunday family, a thousand dollars is life changing money. While to Daniel Plainview, that's not even worth drilling for. Daniel's looking at the millions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like 20 minutes before this, Plainview is talking about pulling, what is it? Is it $5,000 a week or $5,000 a month out of the well that he currently has running in Texas? And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> the, the magnitude of the kind of money that he's dealing with is just incomprehensible to these people. And he very intentionally obfuscates that to you know mm-hmm. keep it for himself, right? And it, these are also nineteen eleven dollars as well. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's kind of like further uh, like complicated by like maybe not so much in Little Boston, but it seems like in the other to- towns he was talking to, like if he was actually following up on these promises, we don't always get to see if he is like bringing schools and like renovations and roads to these towns. But mm-hmm. if he's doing that, like he is still like raising the standard of living pretty significantly by drilling there. And like these uh, towns or these people that he's like drilling uh, for like people that whose land he's buying up, like they can't drill themselves. They don't have the capital to do that. 
Mm-hmm. So like to them, probably it does seem like a really good deal because like their lives are like pretty significant. You know, their kids can go to school. They got a new church or whatever. Uh, and that can all sort of hide just like how much wealth is being extracted <laughs> from them. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it's all, that's also one of the scenes where you, I, I actually realized this time, I think I mentioned this a little bit beforehand. There's uh, there is a lot of strong religious imagery going both ways, both kind of for and against Eli's church um, in little Boston. But when Daniel is talking to the townsfolk is kind of when you see him almost portraying himself as their holy savior, when he starts harping about bread, how he says bread should be no luxury and every household shall have bread and I will provide it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah, I noticed that this time there's almost that slight link to the, what Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread. Mm Mm-hmm. Just that, you know, I will feed the masses. I will bring you, you know, this modern salvation that you do not have. Yeah, it's it's very intentionally phrased through their religious lens and the way that they see it. Because, you know, he, his only real experience is Paul coming to him. His only experience with the town before this is Paul coming to him and asking him what church he belongs to. That's like the first thing he tries to figure out. And then interacting with Eli, who, of course, runs the church. So he knows what he's doing, right? He's, he's trying to put everything into this perspective that they understand, which is, you know, your benevolent God will feed you, except I am your God now. Dude, it, and he, plain, plain View's relationship with religion is very funny throughout the whole movie. I love it. Oh, like, yeah. The first thing. I enjoy all things. <laughs> yeah, I like all of them. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Like he's so bad at not he's so bad at hiding that he isn't a religious person. Like he can't help himself. So when Plainview visits Eli's church and sees like the sermon he's giving, which is very like fire and brimstone, he's uh, exercising like demons. He's exercising arthritis demons from an old lady, right? Yeah. And uh, he tells Eli that was one goddamn hell of a show. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know like i didn't even notice that that's a really like well written actually yeah he can't help but to like dig at him because uh, it's kind of just a power struggle between those two characters through like the whole movie and it's very fun to watch mm-hmm. i really want to talk more about that scene but i'm going to kind of wait until we maybe in like a topic of cinematography and come back to that because that is mm-hmm. one of the best uses of camera work in this film there's a reason it won the oscar for best cinematography and boy, did it deserve it. Yeah, it looks really, really good. I know we were, uh, in the previous podcast, we were like really making fun of like sort of the look of uh, maybe like mid to late 2000s movies because they tended to be very like gray and boring kind of like color palettes. And uh, this this movie is not like that at all, really. It's, it's not like the most colorful movie, but it pr- probably shouldn't be because it's about digging up oil in a desert you know like <laughs> yeah it's pretty like the movie's very like grimy very like kind of kind of gross looking at times but uh it's still like very pleasant to look at you know or very interesting to look at at the very least uh, they mm-hmm. like clearly put in a lot of work with all their shots oh. which is nice to see do we want to get into cinematography right now then yeah uh, sure 
I'm down cool. because yeah, yeah, this is a fantastic looking movie. And again, I'm I'm not an expert. I'll defer to Park on this, but I thought the way that it was constructed technically, it was uh, so good. Oh, it's absolutely stunning. And the the other thing with the cinematography in this film, I think I brought it up in Roadhouse that there were really no camera shots except for the awful barn sex scene that made me feel any kind of emotion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. it was a bad emotion in that this <laughs> movie, these shots make you feel, you know, you, you get that sense of awe, you get the sense of terror, you know, the way that they frame them makes you as the viewer feel something, which is really powerful and really hard to do effectively in movies. And they absolutely killed it in this. Yeah, even like the one of the first shots of the movie when Daniel in 1899, I think, is the first shot when he's down in the hole digging out silver. Yep. The way that it's framed, it I it simultaneously kind of gives you the claustrophobia of being down in this hole, but also the comfort that Daniel has with being down there because it's it's tight, but it's not that tight. Uh, and it gives you kind of the the openness of the way that it opens up to the sky above them while at the same time it's you know it's a dark to hole in the ground <laughs> with those orchestral drones as the camera opens up to show the massive landscape out before oh yeah the soundtrack oh. dude <laughs> i wrote down the the same word droning is what yeah. a lot of this early soundtrack feels like yeah it's it's apocalyptic almost like it's so threatening mm-hmm. um, uh, but with the with the cinematography, there's there's two specific scenes that I would love to talk about because I think they're two of the strongest scenes for it. I mean, it's it's strong throughout the whole film, but these are two that always stand out to me whenever I watch it. Um, and the first one is going back to the the church where Eli is doing this whole exorcism of these demons from this woman's hands. And as he is walking down the aisle, shouting and screaming about how if, you know, as long as I have teeth, I will bite you. And if I only have gums, I will gnaw you. And he's throwing the devil out of the church. And the camera keeps backing up and backing up until it's out of the church. And as Eli exclaims, he's gone, the camera snaps to Daniel Plainview's face with a little smirk, almost like the devil is still right here. Well, wow, I didn't even think about that, honestly, the way yeah, that it snapped. That That's, makes that whole shot even better. Yeah, because it's still like, uh, just like the performance alone is like, you, you get sort of absorbed in the sermon too, you know? Like, even if it is sort of so, like, I thought that like, if I have like no teeth, I will gum you. Like, it's, it's a little funny <laughs> to, to hear, but it's still <laughs> like the performance is like incredible. And like, it's a really... It's like fun scene to watch uh, to the point where I think I was so distracted by that. I didn't even notice the, like what they were doing there with the camera, but mm-hmm. that's, and, and there's a ton of stuff like this that like you catch on rewatches, you know, like for me, was- uh, a scene that really like stood out was uh, when the oil derrick has like exploded. Right. And Plainview has finally kind of a, uh, like it, I don't, they hadn't put the fire out, but they had sort of like uh, kind of not like knocked down all the cables or whatever, and they're like standing on a ridge, just like watching the rest of it burn down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like staring at it, and 
Plainview looks like a demon. <laughs> like there's this like smoke all around him and he's hunched over covered in uh, oil. And this is like right after he's like, uh, like kind of abandoned his now like deafened son to go uh, like tend to his oil derrick. And he's like celebrating that he's that there's all this oil underneath them uh, when his uh when his son has just been like deafened and his like right hand man uh, uh fletcher fletcher who yeah. was actually had a role in miami vice that is our crossover uh, <laughs> he was the fbi <laughs> agent in miami vice uh anyway um he asked him like oh is uh hw like your son okay uh and he just says uh, no he isn't <laughs> you know that he's like he's, he's very calm about the way he says it too yeah he's like it's very like matter of fact and he he seemed like in this moment when you sort of realize that like his oil business is so much more important to him than his adopted son uh he's like he, he looks like almost inhumanly like frightening <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's really well put together yeah, it's a great reveal of just how much of a sociopath he is. Because you get this feeling, the way that he's framing his business and the way that he's you know presenting HW as the face of it, that he might be kind of a exploitative con man. Um, but then, like you said, when it shows there that he doesn't really care about his adopted kid, he just cares about the oil, that's when it really sets in. Like, this is not the good guy in this movie. Not that there really is one, except I guess maybe H.W., but... Yeah, I think H.W. and Mary are really the only two that come out being innocent. Yeah, innocent at all. And then then again, like, H.W. still wants to go, like, start his own oil business in Mexico, right? Like, he's, <laughs> like, could very likely end up the same as his father, you know? Yeah. Uh, they sort of, like, leave that open, right? For sure. But, um... Yeah, and I don't know. I I'm not sure if I totally agree with Plainview being a sociopath. It, I kind of like maybe like an extreme narcissist. That's true. Of, sociopath maybe too and, specific of a diagnosis. And this like I I realized that it, it took my my second viewing to kind of really put this together, but it is sort of vague to me how much he cares for HW and especially how much he cares for uh, the man who like pretended to be his brother, Henry, mm -hmm. because he seems to have like a genuine, he doesn't really seem to have as much of a relationship with HW. It does seem a lot more like he sort of only likes spending time with HW because it makes him look better, you know, like it is a very selfish relationship, mm -hmm. but his relationship with Henry, like while he still wants to be like, in charge you know he still sees himself as like maybe better than henry he did seem like he was really like confiding in him and when he like kills him after he finds out that he's been betrayed he seems like genuinely hurt like he drinks himself to sleep you know he has uh, that's couple, true there are a couple of moments where daniel does show like true human emotion like after after uh, HW goes deaf, there's like the kind of weird cuddling scene of him just holding HW, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, above all, does show that like, somewhere in him there is like a fatherly feeling towards HW. 
but I still think that the business side of him trumps that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you see it again with Henry. And then you also do see it at the very end of the film when, you know, he is screaming at HW that he's just a bastard in a basket and sends him away. And then you see this flashback of him kind of playing with HW, but then he gets up and walks off to the well. So still kind of showing that like, he part of him does care for HW, but he cares about oil more. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, it, that's true. It would have been really easy for them to make him just like appear like he he like only cares about oil. HW was like only a means to an end. He's exploiting these like poor innocent like townsfolk for like what is like right, rightfully theirs. Which like okay, first of all like they're they are colonizing this land <laughs> we can make that clear that they they don't really that's not really their oil either but um they make like plain view and like the townsfolk especially eli like really complicated you know like they make it difficult on themselves and like on the viewer which is just really good yeah i mean he is a very very complex character like it's easy to look at him on the surface and just say he's a narcissistic asshole but there is a lot to him just like there's also a, a lot to eli um you know eli is also that wants to be smart wants to i guess almost kind of be like paul who came to daniel at the start but also wants himself to be forward himself to be the center um because we kind of see that when when eli comes to daniel about blessing the well it's you know it, he doesn't just say like oh yeah i would love to bless the well he says i would like to bless the well and i want you to say the proud son of these hills who tended to his father's flock and then say my name yeah they're both very image obsessed people and their, you know, their goals are kind of wrapped around presenting themselves in a way that allows them to achieve what they want. And what they want is to, again, further their image. It's kind of this endless cycle of just trying to look like the best version of the person you think you are. Yeah, and I think not only that, but like <laughs> to improve your image in relation with everyone else around you, like, you know... Uh, like oh yeah there's you, a competitive nature yeah, to it plain you said is like others must lose right and i think eli is pretty similar that like he wants to be uh like he ha he has he had a lot of control over his town before plain view came along and he's like doing what little he can to sort of undermine like plain view's sort of like authority or at least like moral authority in the town you know like when the derrick blows up he's like oh if only you let me like bless the well it you know might not have gone this way if only you you know join my church or whatever right um yeah eli harps on the blessing the well thing a couple of times because also when he comes to daniel for the money and daniel throws him to the ground you know saying why haven't you come to fix my son why haven't you like prayed for his health and eli on the ground is screaming if you let me bless the well this wouldn't have happened hmm. yeah and that i mean Daniel is trying to, you know, poorly and aggressively, but trying to call out Eli on his own hypocrisy. And Eli is just, he's not ready to see it yet in the way that he does in the kind of final confrontation at the end of the movie. 
And at the same time, I mean, Daniel is, he's the same way, right? He's just as much of a hypocrite. Yep. He does care about his kid, but he's still exploiting him. And he still puts him on a train and sends him away. Seemingly with no intention to bring him back, even though he, of course, does later. Yeah, um, it's kind of, he just, watch. yeah. Oh, Jesus. But yeah, he he can't really face up to kind of his own his own narcissism and hypocrisy and failings until really I it's it's after he sends HW away, right? And some of the talks he has with Henry or the man who's pretending to be Henry. Yeah, and I think, you know, he he when when Henry comes around and so Daniel kind of feels that real family connection, like, okay, this man is actually my brother he says he is while hw is just my adopted son i can continue my family image of a company with somebody that i'm actually a blood relative of mm. but then as soon as he finds out henry was a lie and his actual brother died of tuberculosis and henry just took his story you know he he immediately brings hw back it's the you know the next scene after after the baptism, which I would love to talk about as well. That's a fantastic scene. Um, yes. He immediately brings HW back because now not only is his image ruined with the other oil companies of he's no longer this family man since now HW and Henry are gone, but now the entire town knows that he's abandoned HW. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so it's uh, have it sort of vague, I guess. Where I think it would have brought him back anyway, no matter what. Yeah, at least just to have, like, if anything, just for like kind of selfish reasons. But they kind of like forced his hand there of like bringing him back. And they finally got him a sign language teacher when they brought him back. I wasn't sure if they were doing that uh, when he was in San Francisco. I guess you can probably assume that, right? That he was being like taught sign language then. Yeah, at some point earlier on, like right before Henry shows up, uh, Daniel and Fletcher are sitting at a table together. And Daniel asks Fletcher, do we know any teachers in San Francisco? Yeah. Uh, Chris, and then sends Fletcher off to find one. Yeah. Of course, maybe the best evidence that he uh, doesn't care about HW is that he never bothers to learn sign language. That yes. was like a really... <laughs> sure. like when because you don't really get to see it until uh hw is grown up and like they still have a translator uh that was like a really kind of shocking moment <laughs> for me uh mm -hmm. where it's like wow this dude is uh, like really just turned into a monster by the end yeah very intentional choice for sure and oh man the screenplay on this too and i mean we've harped on basically every aspect of the movie being good but that you know the writing is kind of my area of knowledge it got it's so good hmm. it's just it's a fantastically written movie oh yeah on top of everything else i <clears throat> you know the one that really stuck out to me i mean it was what we were talking about with the the first exorcism mm -hmm. uh or well i guess it's the only exorcism but when he's exercising the arthritis demon from that woman's hands and there's you know what you pointed out with the uh goddamn hell of a show at the end right but just i the way that everything eli says in that is phrased and really i think eli in particular is just an exceptionally well-written character 
with the way that he the the way that he frames everything mm. through his his particular religious lens and through his understanding flawed as it may be of how the world around him is working and how he can take advantage of it and it's the taking advantage of it that i really think makes the character shine because he I don't know that he really knows what he's doing until the very end, right? He's definitely exploiting people. He's taking advantage of people's fear by using this fire and brimstone style of preaching to kind of, you know, bring them into his church and make him a symbol of authority. But I legitimately don't know if he understands that that's what he's done until the very end when Daniel makes him face up to that. And that that's such a good way to write that kind of character, right? Yeah. It's less on the nose than them just being like, I, I am the bad guy and I am exploiting people. Like He legitimately, I don't think, thinks he is the bad guy, even when he is bludgeoned to death at the very end. He thinks he's a sinner who has messed up, but I don't think, I don't think he thinks he is a bad person. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell how much actual religious like conviction he has versus how much mm-hmm. he just wants to use it as like, a means of control. Right. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the writing, I do have a question about... The exorcism scene. I've seen this movie a lot of times. I have it on Blu-ray sitting on my desk right here. But I can still never tell what Eli says about the woman's arthritis. Does he say I'm going to suck it out or I'm going to fuck it out? He says suck it out. He says Okay. Yeah. I watched the movie with subtitles on Netflix because I'm weird and I just watch everything with subtitles. And yeah, it said suck. Okay. <laughs> that would be Good. distressing. Yes, it's just the way he has like his head buried in her hands during that scene kind of muffles it. And every time I hear it, I feel like I hear something different. It definitely felt kind of like weirdly sexual in a way. Which again, I think is also intentional. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, I don't know, it's like a creepy invasiveness to it. Both to the concept of like a demon invading a person's body and also to the preacher sucking it out. (laughs) That also that scene. And I mean, I we're talking about the scene a lot because it's just so damn good, but this comes up a few other times in the movie too, where I wrote down that the, the physical acting and some of the dialogue too, it's almost absurd. I like, I feel like this is the kind of physical acting you would see in a comedy, almost the way that he's like, stomping around with his knees half bent and waving his arms and exercising the demon or at the end of the movie when daniel is just like hunched over knees bent like a freaking sasquatch chasing eli around with a bowling pin and it's like there's a comedic aspect to the way that this is acted but it's not funny the fact that i'm able to take this absurdity seriously is such a testament to how well made this movie is one thing that um, I've actually read, so when I when I really like a movie, I get really in-depth of learning about the production of the movie, everything that went into it, set design, actors, whatever I can. Uh, I did this with Lord of the Rings, of course, um, but this is another one that I've kind of really dug deep on. And Paul Dano, who plays Eli and Paul Sunday, had really not done much rehearsing with daniel day lewis because he was not cast as eli originally eli and paul were not supposed to be twins and the person i can't remember who it was they cast as eli but midway through 
they decided it wasn't working. And so they brought Paul Dano in. And since he hadn't seen many of Daniel Day-Lewis's character acting scenes where he really gets eccentric with it, like a lot of his kind of reaction to it is a genuine reaction of seeing this crazy man yelling about oil and being the third revelation and all of this. Yeah, that makes sense. I would also be frightened of Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie. (laughs) I wouldn't. Yeah, that, uh, especially in like the bowling scene, you can really feel, I feel like it's a good way to explain why like Eli, like honestly, not too good at dodging, not an athletic man. (laughs) He really like, he could have like easily gotten away from, uh, from plain view if he wasn't just in like, some sort of like a trance-like state of fear, you know? Because, mm-hmm. like, uh, he's having, like, bowling balls slowly thrown at him by, like, an aging alcoholic. Uh, and he's, like, trying to, like, crawl away and shit. I don't know. Like, it, it worked in the movie, but it was really funny on, like, the rewatch. Seeing, like, wow, like, this dude, uh, he's, like, not, not athletic, athletic whatsoever. <laughs> like, he's this dude sucks at dodging. a man with a gimpy leg. Right. It's like, who tries to crawl away from their murderer? <laughs> yeah, that seems like a mistake. Yeah. And he, he maybe, he probably didn't realize that he was, like, actually going to be killed there. You know? Yeah, it's like, true. Uh, but uh, also, just speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis's wonderful, eccentric acting he does, um, the, the boy who played H.W. had never been in a movie before. And when his mom, you know, received the notice that they wanted him to come in for this movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, she had never seen a Daniel Day-Lewis movie before. So she picks Gangs of New York as the movie to see what this guy is like and then was terrified of sending her son to go and film this movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. Because if any of you all have ever seen uh, Gangs of New York... He plays a man. Doesn't he play the butcher in it? I mean, he's this, you know, over the top, violent gang boss. Also, speaking of him doing weird stuff, and I know, Park, you wanted to talk about the uh, the baptism scene in the church. But another was another like just absurd piece of physical acting when they dump the water on his head and he like shakes his head off like a dog and just goes like oh my god like i should be laughing right now but i'm terrified yeah i've never seen a man be slapped in the face in a sarcastic way before and like like the the victim of the slap receiving a slap with like sarcasm and like yes like he when like when eli was like slapping him around during the baptism like Plainview still feels like he's in like complete control because like he knows he's won uh, like a, mm-hmm. a small battle there of like he's been baptized but he isn't actually religious you know like he's uh I guess like won them over in this scene so he's so goddamn smug <laughs> during at like the, the the second half of the baptism uh it's really something to see I mean the whole time like during the baptism while Eli is slapping him around Daniel Day Lewis or uh, Daniel Plainview Daniel Day Lewis one and the same is like 
honestly kind of heckling him. You know, he's saying like, where's God? Where's the power of God? And every time he slaps him, he goes, oh, there it is. You know, making fun of the way that Eli is putting on this show. Hmm. Yeah, I think it speaks really well to one of the big themes of this movie, which kind of like what we talked about earlier, but the, the meaning that different people ascribe to something. Because I, like Will said, he, Daniel knows he's one when this is happening, right? The baptism is like this this huge deal to the religious people for you know obvious reasons. It's him joining their church and truly becoming part of the community or whatever. But to him, it's just it's a symbolic victory, and now he finally controls all the land he needs to, and he can just exploit these people till the end of his days. Mm-hmm. They just they view it in this totally different way. Um, and it's just, you know, that, that happens throughout the movie and that seems like an obvious thing, but it's just, it's built into so many of the scenes that it really maintains that dichotomy throughout. Can we also talk about how, uh, Bandy who wants him to get baptized, who will build the pipeline, like knows that he shot somebody and is just like, yeah, just get baptized and you'll be forgiven for your sin. Yeah, that was creepy. Yeah, dude, um, being a, being Protestant is so easy, dude. You literally just say, I'm sorry for a murder. And they're like, you're good, dude. <laughs> you know? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, it... that They very much play up the kind of, like, creepy cult-like aspects of this style of, you know, fire and brimstone church. Yeah, well, that's sort of how, like, churches were run back then, where, like, mm-hmm. it was literally just based on... Like, there may be a loose, like, kind of, like, denominational, like, claim, probably. But uh, it's really just up to Eli, like, how they do things, you know? Exactly. Uh, That, like, each town would almost have, like, its own weird little brand of Christianity that they were dealing with, right? And, like, theirs involved arthritis, exorcisms, and baptism and stuff. But, like, the next town over could be, like... I don't know. Maybe they sing more songs. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I hope so. Jesus, right? Uh, but within like the religious imagery of this, I think I actually asked y'all when y'all were watching it to keep an eye out for them. There are three baptisms throughout this movie, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's all there. Three uh, Eli or uh, H.W. is baptized. Eli is baptized, and then Daniel is baptized. Um, I've even seen an argument to say that Henry's baptized with a bullet, but that might be a bit of a stretch. Mm. Um, One of the things I find interesting of the first baptism in the movie is when they're first dredging up the oil in their like in the discovery well that they find when they're mining for silver long before Daniel and HW have started their company. HW's biological father kind of takes some oil to his hand and rubs it across HW's forehead, like almost like Simba. Um, yeah. Do me yeah, him immediately him to a life ruined by oil. <laughs> exactly. And, but one thing I found interesting in the scene that I didn't notice until this time when I was actually listening to this movie on a better sound system than just my computer uh, is all of the like equipment and such going by in the background sounds reminiscent of church bells and that might just be what i heard but it's i recommend going and listening to that scene because all there's no talking for the first 14 minutes of this movie so all you can really hear is the background noise Hmm. and it to me it sounded very reminiscent of those church bells ringing 
now that they have found the oil. Yeah, I think the the religious imagery of the oil is very intentional in the baptismal aspect of it. I thought it was interesting, too, the way that they tied together oil and blood. Because Will pointed out, I mean, the movie's called There Will Be Blood, but there's only three scenes where there's actually blood. I counted, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in all of them, or excuse me, in the first two, they are in oil right the guy gets hit with the falling pipe down in the oil pit and it's blood splatter mm-hmm. and then the same thing happens at the new well in little boston the guy just gets impaled by like and the there's another drill yeah yeah <clears throat> so the the first two times that we see blood in this movie it is very directly tied to the oil and then there's no more for a solid hour and a half until the end of the movie there's when daniel eli to death yeah. and it's you know He's now left the oil behind directly. He's no longer directly managing it, but the blood has kind of followed him, right? I thought that was very interesting. I actually didn't see, at least in the scene of him actually getting shot, I didn't see any blood. There might have been. Maybe there's four instances of it. But I think you're right. I, I didn't notice any kind of blood spatter which, when he shoots like, Henry. I'm somewhat like, I I like like gory parts of movies. I think they can be pretty fun. Um, but like this... Like, the scene where he, like, executes Henry was, like, actually, like, pretty unsettling to me. Because, like, the way they do it, it's, like, a very, like, small caliber round, you know? Uh, And, like, he shoots him in the head and there's, like, almost no reaction. Like, he kind of just, like, twitches there for a minute, like, with, uh, like, Plainview's kind of hand over his mouth. So, like, he's been, like, shot in the head, but he's sort of, like, dying very slowly, right? Uh, And it was, like, it was a really creepy-looking death, actually, (laughs) for a movie that is otherwise, like, not that violent. Um, They managed to make, like, a, um, you know, bloodless or almost bloodless scene feel, like, very gruesome. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. way he kind of lays there, you know, almost still making, like, a couple of noises out of his mouth, and you can still hear him breathing slowly until he does die yeah it 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 is hard to watch honestly um it's the only death that's like actually slow in the movie all the other deaths are either off screen or very quick that's true yeah the two guys that get hit by the broken uh oil rig pieces both they're dead instantly yeah i think eli takes a couple swings He does That's take true. a couple swings. Kind of knocks him out with the first one and then bashes it in. Yeah. But he is off screen until post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Did they grease bowling lanes back then? Yes, but that's also like a private in-house one, so it's kind of up to Daniel, and clearly he doesn't take good care of that house, as you saw him in the hallway, like, using furniture for rifle practice. Yeah, I think those... it seemed why that he was, or at least that Eli was kind of slipping around on it a little bit, right? When yeah. he's trying to dodge the bowling ball that he throws at him. Yeah, because if, if the audience doesn't know, I I, I was on uh, a competitive bowling team in my college years <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it was the it was the only intramural sport you can do while like still being a little drunk. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I have some experience with bowling. Let me say. And uh, it would be, I know for a fact, it would be really hard to run around on the bowling lane like that. Maybe that explains Daniel's really weird kind of 
ape-like posture when he's running down the lane. <laughs> yeah, it's like without context, just going back to the scene, it's like it's very funny. <laughs> right? Yeah. It, like was it a great scene to take out of context was, if you just want Was the milkshake out. line an ad lib? Do you make I, that up? I don't think he made that up, but his acting in it is fantastic. It actually it it really makes perfect sense. Um, if y'all don't mind me getting into like a little bit of the science behind that idea. No, please do. I don't, I don't know much about like oil. So, stuff, so. Uh, so talking about the the milkshake line, and Daniel going into all the stuff about drainage and how he drinks his milkshake. Uh, a practice that has long since been banned, people were killed for this practice, is called cross-drilling. So since he owned all the land around the bandy tract, but didn't own the bandy tract because he kind of refused to go meet with him like bandy asked him to do, what you can, what you could do, and it's a really scummy practice, is instead of drilling straight down, on your land, as you set up a dredge near the property line and you drill at an angle. And so his straw or his drill stretches all the way across the room into Bandy's land mm -hmm. and is now pulling the oil under the property line and draining it into his wells. Gotcha. I had a feeling um, something like that was going, or, or I guess I interpreted it maybe more as like the oil kind of just like happens to run like, like you can maybe dig straight down on at the property line and still like drain up the oil from the bandy tract. How do they go like diagonally like that? Cause it seemed like the drill they were using was almost like, uh, like gravity was doing it, you know? Oh, I mean, because you still have that, the, the kind of seesaw-looking thing at the top that's kind of driving the drill. Mm. Basically, you just kind of set it up at an angle and you just brace it in to where it's going to go sideways. Once you get the, like, first couple of holes done on it, you can still use gravity for the most part um, gotcha. to go through with it. But, I mean, then there's also, like... You know, when I first heard the scene, I did think of it more as the like just drainage, like he has the land downhill, so all the oil's going to drain into it. It's the him talking about the straw part that kind of makes me think it's more about cross drilling because mm -hmm. that was, and you know, with Daniel's character, it wouldn't surprise me if he was the kind of asshole who would cross drill. Yeah, I, I imagine he did it. I mean, he even. We see earlier in the movie him, uh, he was making a pitch to like a town that was uh, really like arguing amongst themselves, right? And he didn't want to work with them. Uh, and then he like goes just north of the town to like a small farm and offers them uh, money to like drill like just north of where the oil was discovered. Yep. Right. So I guess they kind of set up him doing stuff like that early in the movie. Yeah, he says like you're you're north of the discovery well, but there's we should still be able to hit oil here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when in reality, I'm sure he intends to just cross drill. Cross drill. Yep. <laughs> Which I'm sure like none of the town's people have even heard of, right? Uh, at that time. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know when cross drilling became like an apparent legal issue, but mm-hmm. at some point after I think several people were probably killed over cross drilling, it became illegal to do, which it should be. Um, I don't want some I don't want my neighbor taking what's on my land. Yeah, it's hard to tell really like how much <laughs> how much like influence the law has. Is this really like if it, I don't know if anyone uh, listening has played like Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> but uh this like all of the characters in this movie feel like they're straight out like i have i have killed like 200 daniel plain views in red dead (laughs) one and two combined you know like all uh it's very much like that sort of time like the old west is sort of like ending and being like industrialized right yeah Uh, Mm -hmm. so the law is sort of loosey-goosey i guess right yeah, I mean, I don't think you see the law once, except for when he's in that town at the start. That's like already a pretty developed town, though, as you can tell, because there's like a fire engine there. There's actual like cars and you see the cops kind of directing traffic around the oil that's running down the hill. Mm-hmm. But you don't see him again. And then, you know, when he arrives in little Boston, nobody has a car except for him. Until later in the movie, you see, like, I think one or two other ones there. Like, now the town is wealthy and has this oil and things. But you see that with, like, this still being very much so a frontier town. Well, I think, Charlie, didn't you describe it as looking like every other Western movie? Yeah, every Western movie town looks like a movie set because that's just the only way we've ever seen them, right? Yeah. Aside from old black and white pictures that obviously can't show you the full town. So like every wide shot of a Western town, it just, it looks like a movie set real quick. Just going back to the, the, the burning dredge scene or the burning, the burning Derek. Sorry. I keep calling them dredges. Dredge I think are sea drills. This is a Derek. Hey Derek. Not much, man. Yeah. I can play the guitar. Uh, the burning Derek, you know, the, the really cool thing about that shot is, they were in, I think they were in like a state park or a national park filming this in Texas. It's actually the same place in Texas. They were filming uh, No Country for Old Men at the exact same time as this movie. Um, so they had to come up with a system that could burn like crude oil burns, but wouldn't get any actual oil on the ground or the EPA would destroy them. So they designed a specialized pump that pushed a specialized fluid of like some crude oil, jet fuel, and like a few other things to create this jet of fire with the black smoke you get from oil burning and create one of the most stunning shots of any movie I've ever seen. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a CGI driven shot. It is a true giant wooden structure that they have set on fire out in the middle of the desert for this. And, like, and they it feels like the there. world is ending in that scene. <laughs> like they did a really good job of making it feel like, like making it feel as frightening as it would be to like someone who is living in Little Boston. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah, every shot that. of the rig burning, it just it fills the whole frame up. And so, then uh, that like like the giant wide angle shot that's like on top of the mountainside next to the small town just shows you the scale of this fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but a quick little fun fact about that is when they were testing that fire, uh, the black smoke it created 
drifted over into the No Country for Old Men set and actually ruined an entire day of filming for them because they could not see anything. That is Wait, <laughs> because of the fire? <laughs> it's, they, were, they were both filming in the same state park in Texas at the same time, and when they were testing the flame jet for the burning Derrick one day, the black smoke from the whole slurry burning was blown into the no country for old men set and they couldn't film. They lost an entire day of filming because of there will be blood. Oh my God. <laughs> it's crazy that both of those movies came out the same year. It like briefly felt like there was going to be a neo Western resurgence watching the trailers for them, but then neither of them are really Westerns, which I, I think yeah. is interesting, at least in the, the marketing. No Country for Old Men felt more like a Western than this, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. No Country for Old Men is just like a dark postmodern Western. Not to, you know, abuse terminology like postmodern, but I mean, it's Cormac McCarthy, for God's sake. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is very much like it It feels, the, the presentation of it early on feels so much like a Western. And which I was expecting the banditos to show up at any moment and it just mm. didn't happen. It's really interesting. And the marketing was kind of weird too for There Will Be Blood because I remember one of the first posters um, and I, I remember we put it up for Cinema Club in at Tennessee actually kind of makes it look like it would be a gang film if you knew nothing about it because it's just Daniel Plainview kind of sitting with like it's close up on his face there's like a shadow over his face and he has this fedora on and it's called there will be blood and so if you're just yeah. walking down the street and see that you're almost immediately at least I did assume this is a gang movie like a you know 1930s 1920s style gang movie yeah, I was thinking either that or like a like the hills have eyes sort of deal, you know, like like some sort of old timey like I don't know like splatter fest going on. Yeah, because like the because like the name of the movie is like I don't know like it's a, it's a hell of a name. It's really good, <laughs> you know. It's like yeah. attention grabbing, but uh, it's the film is so much more highbrow than its title, which I think is pretty oh, funny. Definitely. That the what you said about the shadow park that reminded me of the scene on the beach with Daniel and Henry, right? Yes. Um, when they're they're talking about the business a little bit and about how the deal went well, and this is kind of the last conversation they have before Daniel decides to kill him. And the way that this is shot, Henry is sitting kind of three quarters in the shade and a little bit out while Daniel is just sitting in the sun for this whole conversation and then Daniel gets up or excuse me, Henry gets up and leaves and walks into the shadow. Daniel gets up, walks into the ocean and then kind of gets crashed over by this wave. And then we cut ahead to when he murders Henry. And it's such an interesting shot in the way that I think, I think it speaks again to the kind of the narcissism aspect of the character, right? Because he, Traditionally, we would we would look at this and we'd think, okay, like the the bad guy who's about to kill, commit the murder is going to be sitting in the dark. People, uh, you know, not to bring up the Star Wars prequels of all things, but people talk all the time about the last conversation that Anakin and Obi Wan have before their fight. Anakin is standing like kind of half in the shadow and then steps into it, 
as he walks away. So you would think they'd do something like that, but it's kind of shot more from Daniel's perspective where he sees Henry sitting partially in this shadow. And then he walks into it as Daniel accepts it. Like he has now come to see this guy as an enemy before he's even really figured out who he is. Right. Because he's always looking for that evil in other people. And he says it himself. Uh, it is just, it's such an interesting way of framing it in the mindset of the character, as opposed to trying to tell the audience what to, what to think and what to judge about these two characters. I, what's the, uh, I see the worst in people, Henry, I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. Exactly. And I, I think ultimately that's really what the movie is about, right? It's got, it's got a lot of themes and a lot of stuff is trying to say, but I think the biggest one is just that people see what they want to see, especially in other people. Um, and when you're somebody who's in a position to exploit, you're going to, you're going to see them as exploitable and anybody who's not exploitable, you're going to see as an enemy and Daniel and Eli, they do the same thing. It's wow. just a different yeah. framing. That's a fantastic analysis of it. Actually. Yeah. Can I do, thank my, you, thank you. can I do my milk analysis real quick? Your, uh, I'm sorry, your milk analysis? My grand theory of, of milk in movies. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> so this really just came from me noticing. So like two of the best movies of the of the 2000s uh, involve a poor family offering milk to the bad guy. Uh, this and then Inglorious Bastards a year after. Um, huh. And like milk is weirdly all over this movie particularly with eli pouring whiskey in it <laughs> i mean no not right. eli with, with, with daniel plainview pouring whiskey in it and giving it to hw um and like i feel like in, in movies it always like it's always sort of like a big like like innocent it's like the easy read of like the symbolism of milk or whatever is like innocence right uh this is like what you feed babies so like Daniel Plainview, like, and, like, partially they maybe used it as, like, to, as, like, a sign of the times, right? But him, like, dipping the uh, milk bottle in, like, whiskey and giving it to the kid to shut it up and, you know, like, poisoning the milk or whatever, this, like, uh, sort of, like, symbol of innocence and then ending the movie with, like, a I drink your milkshake thing. I don't know. There's something there, probably. That's actually a good point. I didn't even think about the the milk thread. Yeah. Mostly I just wanted to, oh. to talk about Inglorious Bastards for a little bit because I like that movie. But. That's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. All right, add it to the list. Right. Man, you know what the world needs more of is three white guys talking about Quentin Tarantino movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? Now that you put it that way. Take it That's off the list. No Quentin Tarantino yeah. movie. A a another thing about the title of this movie being sort of like misleading, because uh, I uh, asked Bailey if she wanted to watch it. She was like, it's called like There Will Be Blood. Like, no way. Like, she's not into violent movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, no, it's actually like not violent. Like, you know, you can like, if you need to like look away, like it's really obvious when it's going to happen. Right. If you've seen it, you can like pick out where the violence is. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it is, is like the ultimate like three hour long movie that your boyfriend makes you watch because <laughs> it's just about like sweaty dudes in a field covered in oil <laughs> like feeling feelings 
<laughs> yeah, that that's a good point. You know, um, so she didn't end up watching it, but I, and I, I love this movie, but it is a uh, it is very much that that kind of film. Yeah, it is a dark, upsetting, feeling heavy movie in a very like masculine, assertive way. Um, not that that's a you know bad thing necessarily. That's just that's the kind of movie it is. No, as good I, as I it is, it, probably not for everyone. But it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, for me, it 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 executes what it's trying to do incredibly well, and I think it's like, I don't know, it's like an important movie. You know, like the things it's trying to say, I think, are important, right? Like, definitely, is as, as, yeah. as easy as it is to like, you know, be like, oh, it's like long, super serious. Like, no, I, I can't. Like, I can't make fun of this movie too much. It's hard, you know? This movie is just really good. Really yeah, good. There's really nothing in it that stands out that, like, I want to make a joke about. I mean, I would love to make jokes about H.W. and Bush, but um, <laughs> we just, it, it's not worth doing. It's too good. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyways, <laughs> I think uh, this all segues us nicely to our brief little reviews before we wrap up uh here at the jump cuts podcast we don't really like to ascribe numerical reviews to movies i think it's easier to just say whether or not we would recommend people watch them and if so who so with that in mind uh park would you recommend people watch there will be blood absolutely without a doubt you should watch this movie if you haven't um just for the storyline of it the acting in it the cinematography there's nothing about this movie i don't like and will um yeah absolutely everyone should watch this movie uh your boyfriend is right it's a good movie <laughs> you should check it out even though it's very long you could watch it you could break it up into multiple days you know like you have options it's on netflix please watch i agree the movie's fantastic you should watch it my only stipulation would be if you're the kind of person that just doesn't like dark movies or movies and stories where there's not really you know a redeeming moment for the main characters or something positive to take away with them because that's not really here but it's still a really good movie and if you enjoy that kind of you know darker side of film and of storytelling this this is a good movie for you so definitely check it out so that should just about wrap it up uh we will be posting new episodes every thursday we are now on spotify breaker google podcasts pocket casts and i think i might be missing one but you can follow us on twitter at jump cuts pod for updates as we get rolled out to more platforms should be on apple as well soon tm uh well do you guys have anything you want to plug will i do um you can follow me on twitter at will post words and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's just Will Johnston on YouTube. I talk about movies even more there. And Park? Um, you can follow me on my Instagram, which is at summerhour underscore brewing. Alrighty. And you can find me on Instagram at charlieb.writes, where I will tell you about my feelings, whether you want to hear about them or not. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel that I'm not really using at the moment, but I'm working on planning and spinning up a little more. It's called Page to Screen. I will be talking about book to movie and TV adaptations. And again, make sure you follow us on Twitter because we're working on getting some more content onto there. Will makes funny things sometimes. We think it's a good time. You should check it out. So, 
that should uh, just about cover everything and wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to leave a like or subscribe or follow or review whatever you do on your chosen podcast app. Again, we will be rolling out to more soon and we will update you as we do that. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next Thursday. Bye. We're finished. Hey. <laughs> the gang gets DMCA'd. <laughs>